0: Hey, welcome to Gospel Community Sermon Podcast. Thanks for listening in. We hope that uh, you enjoy what you hear and that we handle the word faithfully. We'd invite you, if you have any questions or want to attend a service, to visit www.gcctroy.com. A few months ago, or a few years ago even, uh, I can't even remember what the time is, but I was reading stories about those individuals that were leaving as refugees from Middle Eastern countries with the presence of ISIS arising in their midst. And as they were giving accounts of what was happening, there was these stories of, of these refugees. They would kind of wash up on shore, and they would find these copies of the Koran that would wash up with them, these people that had left behind their faith as they left their homeland. There's a reality to that, isn't it? The the things that we hold most dear and the difficulties of life, sometimes those difficulties press us and our belief. And some of those refugees were really uh, pressed in their life, as it were. See, this morning, as we turn to a book in the Bible in First Peter, we find people who are described as elect exiles. We find a group of people that are described as, as those who run against the grain of this world. As we turn to this, this passage this morning in 1 Peter chapter 1, verses 1 and 2, uh, we're finding an introduction to, to Peter's letter, but overall, I think what he's trying to get at is that exiles need otherworldly promise of grace and peace. We as exiles, as we kind of navigate this world too, as we kind of work through what the world has for us, we need the promise of grace and peace this morning, don't we? Maybe you're here this morning and you feel the weight of the last year just kind of pressing down on you. You feel more and more ill at ease in our world. Well, the good news is you're not the only one. God has good news for us in grace and peace this morning. So we're going to see this in, in three different things. We're going to talk about who Peter is. We're going to talk about who he's writing to, and then we're going to talk about what exactly does he hope for these recipients of this letter? What's the purpose of this writing? So we want to dive in this morning. Who is Peter? Now, you haven't, don't have to be in a church very long before you hear the name Peter kind of thrown around, right? Well, in verse 1, Peter introduces himself. He says, Peter, an apostle of Jesus Christ, and, and that's it. That's all he's going to say about himself. Peter describes himself as this apostle, right? And that's one of those church words that we kind of throw around that we don't really know what they mean, right? We go, yeah, he's an apostle. What is that? The word actually means that he's a sent one. And we typically think when we talk about apostles, we think about the 12 or 13 apostles that existed in the New Testament. Those are the disciples that after Jesus' death and resurrection, they're responsible for the message of the gospel to go out with power as the Spirit enables them to do so. Uh, we think about those 12, 13 apostles as they were, Paul and Peter and, and James and John and all of these individuals that are uniquely called by God. They're uh, called, they've seen Christ, they've been with Christ, they've seen the resurrected Christ. And Peter describes himself as one of these sent ones. Now we might be surprised, if you really know who Peter is, you might be surprised that he gets this kind of special privileged position, right? Right? I mean, Peter's life started off, or his life in Christ as a disciple started off uh, well enough. He started, he was a fisherman, he's there fishing, having a good day, and Jesus calls him and says, come and follow me, and I'll make you fishers of men. He started strong. He, uh, in Matthew chapter 16, we see that Jesus is having this dis- discussion with his disciples, and he's saying, who do people say that I am? And Peter kind of just blurts out, you are the Christ, the son of the living God, In John chapter 6, at the end of John chapter 6, as the crowds just kind of leave Jesus, they're disgusted with his teaching, and they leave him, Jesus turns to his disciples and he says, will you also leave me? Peter is the one who speaks up. He says, to whom shall we go? You have the words of eternal life. See, at times, Peter's impetuous nature served him well. He spoke before he thought, right? At other times... It didn't serve him well. Think about Jesus, the last hours of Jesus' death, or the last hours of Jesus' life, excuse me. And when Jesus is predicting that his disciples would fall away, Peter objected in Matthew 26. He says, though they all fall away because of you, I will never fall away. And Jesus kind of looks back at Peter and says, hey, before the rooster crows, you will deny me three times. The mouth is still going, but the mind is not thinking. It was then that Jesus predicted that Peter would deny him these three times, and sure enough, that's exactly what happened. And, and so we finish, and Jesus is crucified, and Peter is still fearful and, and, and gone and, and, and out of sorts. And we, the next time we see Peter is in John chapter 21. John chapter 21, Jesus, or Peter has gone fishing again. He thinks that, that God has benched him because of his actions, But what Jesus does is he comes to Peter in John 21, and Peter sees Jesus on the shore, and he literally jumps out of the boat, swims ashore to find Christ there. The fish are already on the fire, and Jesus is going to have a conversation with Peter. And he says to Peter, he says, Simon, son of John, do you love me more than these? Do you love me more than these fish? Of course, Peter affirms his love for Christ. Three times, Jesus calls him and says, Simon, son of Peter, do you love me? Jesus, or Peter affirms his love for Christ, and then Jesus says to him, feed my sheep, feed my lambs. That is, Jesus is affirming that, that God still has a place for Peter. God still has work for Peter to do. As we read this epistle, we recognize that Peter is an apostle. He's one who is sent by God with a particular message for his church. It's a reminder to us this morning that God still has a message for his people, doesn't he? See, Peter identif- identifies himself as a sent one for a reason. Peter's message is given by God. In Second Peter, he'll remind us that the prophets spoke from God as they were carried along by the Holy Spirit. At the end of Second Peter, he'll attribute the, uh, the writings of Paul and his own writings to be Scripture. See, P- Peter fully understands his message is not his own. He was sent with a message from God. We live in a world where everyone has something to say, don't we? There's like YouTubers, and there's podcasters, and there's uh, news anchors, and there's all these like pundits that want to comment on everything. We have all of these avenues by which the talking heads are just constantly spitting out their own understanding, but here in First Peter and here in the Scriptures, it is God who speaks. And it's notable this morning that God uses Peter's broken, flighty, impetuous mouth as a vessel for his own authoritative word to be established and spoken. See, the recognition is that God still speaks to us today. He still speaks the same words that he's spoken for some 2,000 years. His word is sufficient that the man of God might be adequate or mature, equipped for every good work. Might I suggest this morning that what the world needs more than ever is authoritative words from God, not another YouTube rant. Rant. Not the subject of someone's whimsy and fancy, but we need faithful men and women willing to stand with God's ancient message because God's words still echo through the world's hollowness. See, we need bold Christians, those who will stand in confidence in these promises that Peter and other authors in the Scriptures give us. So that's Peter, right? Peter, an apostle of Jesus Christ. But who's he writing to? Who is he speaking to? And how do we understand kind of the context of this letter? Well, later on in verse 1, he says this, To those who are elect exiles of the dispersion in Pontus, Galatia, Cappadocia, Asia, and Bithynia, right? According to the foreknowledge of God, the Father, and the sanctification of the Spirit, for obedience to Jesus Christ and for the sprinkling with His blood. See the first thing that Peter says about his audience, he says, they were elect exiles. Right? That word, that word elect, it causes all kinds of controversy, doesn't it? All of us kind of we tighten up a little bit when we hear that word election. I have more conversations about this term than anything else. What are we talking about? Well, elect is just a word, it just means chosen. Peter later tells us that the Father foreknew us. Paul tells us that this happened before the foundations of the world. And throughout Paul's writings, he's using words like elect, predestined, preordained, foreknown. He's constantly throwing this language of a God who sovereignly works all things to his will. See, we've noted before that if grace is going to be gracious, it must be undeserved. It must be wrought by God himself rather than me working out my own salvation. See, Peter is plugging us into the fullness of this grace. Uh, Right now we're reading a book uh, through our growth modules by a guy named J.I. Packer. J.I. Packer just recently died uh, here uh, in the last, what, year, I think, but he says this. He says, there's tremendous relief in knowing that God's love to me is utterly realistic, based at every point on prior knowledge of the worst about me, so that no discovery can disillusion him or disillusion him about me in the way I'm so often disillusioned about myself, and quench his determination to bless me. So what we see is that Peter's writing to this group of believers that he describes as elect. And here's the thing is that we recognize that when we look at the, the nations that he's writing to, he's writing largely to Gentile believers. See, the de- designation as elect exiles would lead us to believe that Peter was maybe writing to a, a Jewish audience because those two terms are highly used of, of Abraham and uh, were really kind of sweet to the Israelite people. See, Abraham was described as chosen by God in Genesis 18. He was described as a sojourner and a foreigner in in Genesis chapter 23. And so Israel would have kind of grabbed onto these titles and said, that's us, that's who we are. These Jews would have said, we are elect exiles, that's our history. But Peter's writing to these people in Pontus and Galatia and Cappadocia and Asia and Bithynia and saying the exact same thing about them. See, when we get to verses 14 and 15 of chapter 1... Peter says that I am a uh, excuse me, as obedient children, do not be conformed to the former passions of your former ignorance. He's saying to them, Hey, you formerly walked in ignorance. That's not something they would have commonly said to someone who was raised in the Jewish tradition. So he's probably speaking to, to largely a Gentile audience. And so what he's saying is, he's saying that these Gentiles too We're elect exiles, just like Abraham was, just like Isaac was, just like Jacob was, that we just saw in the book of Genesis. Peter is describing this to these Gentile believers. So here we are, we're elect people, made faithful in Jesus Christ by God's sovereign decree. But it's not just that they're elect, that's the sweet part of the designation, right? If that's sweet, we might find the second part to be bitter. We're exiles. Exiles, meaning we're sojourners or visitors, we're um, kind of these people who live in a land that we don't actually hold to. We actually have a homeland that we call our own. Look at what he says he, uh, in, in in the second part. They are elect exiles of the dispersion in Pontus, Galatia, Cappadocia, Asia, and Bithynia. If you look at the map here, uh, really they're listed in order of how a uh, Uh, an emissary would go and and deliver this letter. Pontus first, Galatia, Cappadocia, Asia, and Bithynia. He would go around that whole part and, and deliver that in that order. See, Tom Schreiner points out that Peter's likely addressing Uh, not just a political reality, but a spiritual reality for these people. They're not just exiles politically that may have been kicked out of home or, or whatever else that may or may not have been true, but probably the deeper reality is that they were spiritually exiled. See, it's worth noting that Peter closes his letter in chapter five, verse 13, and he says that he's writing from Babylon. And he's not really writing from Babylon. He's writing from Rome. And he's kind of using this kind of Notion of being in exile. He's tapping into the history of these Israelites, of his own history as an Israelite, and saying, I am in exile too. I'm writing from Babylon. See, Peter is using a political metaphor to highlight a spiritual reality. See, a sojourner bears a devotion to his homeland over and above the place where he currently lives. And so Christians, as, as we live in this world, we have a heavenly priority. We... we uh, live with a different priority than our neighbors and our friends and relatives who don't know christ see we we see this spiritual sojourner designation used later on in the book as well and in chapter 2 verse 11 beloved i urge you as sojourners and exiles to abstain from the passions of the flesh peter's going to use this throughout his book see this morning anybody who is in christ bears this identity we are people who are exiles You might be American or Canadian or Latvian or whatever you are. But if you're in Christ, you are an exile. You are not at home here. No matter how much you are all for America, if you are in Christ, you are an exile. The priorities of the land in which you live do not always align with the priority of your spiritual homeland in Christ we stand in a long line of faithful men and women who will find themselves ill at ease in the world. We stand in the tradition of Abraham and Isaac and Jacob and Jeremiah and Daniel and Christ himself. It's as Paul says later in the book of Philippians, he says, our citizenship is in heaven. See, this morning as Peter's writing to us, we, we should kind of reckon with this idea that being chosen by God puts us at odds with the world that we're in. See, we might not realize this, but our election actually makes us exiles. It's worth noting that when Peter writes this, he's writing these two words together, and the one modifies the other. Election, or our electness, as it were, modifies the term exile so that we have a very specific understanding of what Peter's getting at. He's not just describing exiles, he's describing exiles given a new allegiance because of God's sovereign choice. That is, our right relationship with God changes our priorities away from those of the world around us. We've seen this before, right? Jesus says this in John 14 through 16, as he's about to go to the cross, he's speaking to his disciples and he's telling them, I'm going to send the Spirit to you. And in John 15, he says this If you were of the world, the world would love you as its own. But because you are not of the world, but I chose you out of the world, therefore the world hates you. See, according to Jesus, the world's hatred is caused by God's divine choosing. And so we recognize that, that we are at odds with the world around us by God's foreknowledge. As those in Christ, we bear a different priority, don't we? Maybe we've felt that in the last year. You and I, if, if we're in Christ, we face ideological differences with the world around us. We, uh, God tells us that this material world's not all that exists. But our world insists that only what is seen and touched and smelled is what's real. God tells us that he created the world and is actively involved in it. The world tells us that the world is the product of randomness sustained only by a long change of chain of causes and effects. We see a moral difference, don't we? See, God tells us he's the author of the scriptures, that they are authoritative and sufficient for us. And in those scriptures, he tells us that the marriage bed is to be kept pure, that that lying is wrong, that taking of innocent life is a violation of God's righteous standard, that jealous desire for the things that I don't own that others do is also wrong before him. But our world consistently blurs and confuses these things, doesn't it? See, we face all of these challenges because we are exiles, away from home, citizens of heaven. Maybe you feel that weight this morning. But I love how Peter wraps up this section it's in this last half of verse 2. He says, may, gree- grace, Greece. may grace and peace be multiplied to you. See, so what does Peter hope for his recipients? What does he desire to see for these people that, that he's writing to? First thing he says is increasing grace. See, in the, in the Old Testament world, New Testament world, if you would sit down and write a letter, the first word you would write would probably be Karain. and it would mean greetings. Greetings, right? It's a simple thing you would write. But what Peter and Paul do in the New Testament is they take that, that word and they shift it just a little bit. And they make Karain into "charis," which means grace. Not just greetings, but grace to you. And we use that word a lot, grace, don't we? We, we talk about grace. Um, we, we, we throw that term around. We use it so loosely. When I was in college, there was a, a friend of mine who had a, a broken tooth, and he was set to go on a missions trip the next day, and he had broken his tooth, I don't know, biting a piece of candy or something, and so he's walking around, and, and I loved my, my friend because of this, but he, he was always oriented to God's grace, and so he's walking around holding his mouth going, I just, I just need grace, I need grace, and I'm thinking, no, you need a dentist, right? <laughs> See, we, we talk about grace, but sometimes we don't really know what it means, Grace is just really unmerited favor. It's undeserved kindness from God to us. It's the extension of mercy to us, mercy being that thing that we did deserve that God didn't extend to us, namely, punishment for our sins. See, our new life in Christ purchased by Jesus' death and resurrection, not by our own efforts, is God's grace to us. God extends grace to us in Christ that you and I could not earn right standing with God. We needed God to bestow it upon us. And so what he did is he sent his own son to bear our punishment so that he could extend to his own people grace. It's not just grace though that Peter writes about, it's peace. If, if grace or, or Kerrain was a, a typical Greek greeting, peace would have been a very Hebrew kind of greeting, right? Shalom. And we might think, oh yeah, you know, peace, right? We, we all have the 1960s peace in our heads when we start thinking about this. But that's not really what Peter's writing for. See, the, the term shalom or the term peace had so much more bound up in it than just the absence of conflict, what Peter's writing here is more about a state of life that is, is, is marked by a relational tranquility, that is marked by a sense of prosperity and thriving. It's, it's got a few different contexts in the scriptures so that we have peace with one another, that we live in harmony with, with God's church, but we also have peace with God through Jesus Christ, as Romans 5 tells us. So what Peter has done is he's taken up his pen to write to Gentile Christians in Asia and he's ascribing to them these this identity of elect exiles. Uh, just like their spiritual forebearers, Abraham and Isaac and Jacob, these are wanderers who are, are made so by the electing power of God, the foreknowledge of God before the foundations of the earth that extended grace and peace to us. And now, as we wander this earth, as we look through uh, the, the, the lens of hardship and the world that we face, we also are increasing in that grace and peace. this morning, I think what Peter is writing to us is he's telling us that God speaks grace and peace amidst our sojourning. God speaks grace and peace to us in the midst of our difficulties in this life. If you notice, we didn't preach a certain part in in verse 2. Peter writes that it's according to the foreknowledge of God in the sanctification of the Spirit for obedience to Jesus Christ and for sprinkling with his blood. See, the truth is this morning that God alone makes us Christian. He he brings us to this point, and this is what verse 2 describes. God makes us elect exiles. See, we are elect exiles, as verse 2 says, according to the Father's foreknowledge. What is that? What's foreknowledge? This is kind of fun. The Greek word that's used there is actually prognosis. It's the idea of foreknowing or, or having an, a knowledge of something before it happens. And we might think that this is only referring to God's omniscience. It, it's a, a word that's kind of born out in the New Testament. In Acts chapter 2, Jesus was offered up according to God's foreknowledge. The, the Jews were not rejected by God because they were foreknown in Romans chapter, chapter 11. See, we might think that God kind of looks down the corridors of time and sees who would respond to him, and those people become God's foreknown elect people. But the problem is passages like this, see, Peter says that this is according to the foreknowledge, that our status as elect exiles is according to God's foreknowing of us. See, we should see rather that that when God foreknows it, it actually causes his divine action in human history. That is to say that God does not simply look down the corridors of time to see who would believe and make those people his foreknown people. Rather, Jesus tells us, like he does in John 15, that we did not choose him, he chose us. Fundamentally then, we should understand that God is one who foreknows such that we are brought to salvation. Peter tells us that we are elect exiles according to God's foreknowledge. That is, our status as elect is according to his foreknowing. See, you might say, okay, I just got lost in all of that. Here's what I'm saying. That God foreknows in the sense that he causes us to be Christian doesn't just make it possible for us to be Christian. He actually makes us Christian. Do you believe that? Do you believe that God saved you in totality? That he didn't just make it possible for you to become Christian. He actually wrought you out of your sinfulness. That he caused you to be born again, as Peter will say in the very next verse in chapter one, verse three. See, Christian, you are loved by the Father before the foundations of the earth. While this world rages around you, the Father has set his blessing on you from before time. It's a sweet word for us as we live in exile, right? But It's not just according to the Father's foreknowledge. We are elect exiles in the Spirit's sanctification. That's what Peter says here, according to the foreknowledge of God, the Father, in the sanctification of the Spirit. Sanctification is another one of those really spiritual words, right? What is Peter talking about? There are two different types of sanctification, and sometimes we get this kind of confused. There's a practical sanctification. We talk about that a lot. A practical sanctification, it makes you more holy. It it means you're taking on the character of Christ. The little white lie that you told a few years ago, you wouldn't tell in the same circumstances this time around. God kind of takes off the rough edges of our character and he brings us into conformity to the picture of his own son Jesus Christ. See this kind of understanding this practical sanctification is places like we see this in 1 in Thessalonians chapter 4. Paul writes he says for this is the will of God your sanctification that you abstain from sexual immorality. And so Paul's giving us a very clear example. You should continue in purity, and sexual purity, because you're being sanctified. But there's another sense in which the Word of God speaks of our sanctification. It's not just that we become more holy. The Lord writes to us and tells us that there is a positional sanctification. That is, that God has set us apart for his purpose. It's reflected in a place like Hebrews chapter 10, verse 10. And by that will, we have been sanctified through the offering of the body of Jesus Christ once for all. See, when Peter writes here, he speaks of our position in Christ. That is, the Spirit of God, hearing of the divine electing work of the Father before the foundation of the world, has worked in us, convicting us of sin and righteousness and judgment, as John 16 has promised, calling us uh, out of the grave into newness of life so that we would be born again, like Jesus said to Nicodemus, that we'd be uh, born again to a living hope, like 1 Peter 1, verse 3. See, the Spirit is actually working out God's electing work from before the foundations of the Earth in real time in human history, so that He's convicting us of our sinfulness, recognizing that we need grace and mercy from God. So the Father foreknows, the Spirit sanctifies. Look what He says next. He said, According to the foreknowledge of God the Father and the sanctification of the Spirit, for obedience to Jesus Christ and for sprinkling with His blood elect exiles for obedience to Christ. Again, we might think that when Peter's speaking here about obedience to Jesus, we're talking about not smoking or drinking or chewing or going with girls who do, right? We're, we're talking about doing righteous things. We're being obedient. We're not doing the things we know we shouldn't do. But that's not really the sense that Peter's writing here. In fact, if you remember back to Romans chapter one or Romans 15, Paul writes about the obedience of faith. See, let me show you from the text why this can't be speaking about our practical obedience uh, in everyday, day to day life. See, obedience to Jesus Christ and sprinkling with his blood. The obedience that we're talking about is our obedience to Christ in coming to salvation that we might be sprinkled with his blood. See, all three of the persons of the Trinity are working on us, God foreknowing, the Spirit sanctifying, Christ sprinkling, so that we might come to a saving faith in Jesus Christ, so that we might be recipients of what Peter writes to us, grace and mercy multiplied to us. So we have been sprinkled with Jesus' own sacrificial blood. Sounds kind of gross, doesn't it? Like, if we were to just be honest, anybody want to be sprinkled by blood? Not really. Where did that come from? Sprinkling with blood? If you go back to the Old Testament, to Exodus chapter 24, uh, Moses, when he ratifies the covenant with the people of Israel, what does he do? He sprays the blood of the lamb on them and he says this, uh, he says in, in Exodus 24, behold the blood of the covenant that the Lord has made with you in accordance with all these words. I've ratified this covenant. You have been sprinkled with the blood of the dead thing that we just killed so that we could put this in action. And in the same way, Jesus, on the night of his death, in Matthew chapter 26, takes up the chalice of his his supposed blood. And he says, this is my blood, the covenant, which is poured out for many for the forgiveness of sins. (laughs) So we have been sprinkled with Jesus' own sacrificial blood so that the penalty of our sins has been paid in full so that we would no longer be condemned by our sinfulness in the midst of all this, there's kind of just this undercurrent of all this, isn't there? And I think Peter will get to it explicitly later on, is that the person of Christ was one who suffered. Jesus was one who went through difficulty. He himself lived as an exile, as a sojourner. See, the Son of Man, as Jesus says in Matthew chapter 8, did not have any place to lay his head. The foxes have nests, the birds, or the foxes have holes, the birds of the air have nests, but the Son of Man has no place to lay his head. I about got that backwards, didn't I, right? He felt, Jesus felt... Consistently at odds with the rulers and authorities that he faced, to the point that uh, the culmination of his life rule, re- leads to this day where all of his contemporaries stand alo- around him and shout out, Crucify, crucify him. He, his rejection was universal, such that even his disciples fled the scene of his betrayal. Men, women, child, adult, rich, poor, all types of people living out the rejection of of their God as they put Jesus to death because Jesus has exposed the orientation of sinful hearts. Here's the news this morning for us. That Jesus' grace and peace gives life to elect exiles, doesn't it? Jesus' grace and peace is for us. It is this rejected Christ who brings grace and peace to his rejected followers. And it is our participation in Christ through faith that brings about our rejection. Just as his victory brings us victory, his rejection brings us rejection. Christian, don't be confused. Jesus is both the cause and remedy of your alienation. Jesus is the cause and the remedy of your alienation. Jesus is oxygen for elect exiles. He offers grace and peace exponentially to us. The provision of Jesus' death and resurrection is more than enough to to sustain us amidst our sojournings. Amen. See, I guess I look at this passage and I see this introduction, and I know what's coming in this book, and I'm recognizing that this book is going to step on our toes. I have an anticipation that some of these things are going to be hard for some of us to swallow. There's sections about husbands and wives, sections about working underneath uh, masters that I think are are correlating to us working for our employers. There's sections about submitting to governing authorities. I think these things are going to be hard for us. But I also recognize that there's grace bound up in all of this. And I think Peter wants to orient us to that grace first. See, the Christian life, the Christian life is living against the grain. I'm about to sound like an idiot. I'm just going to tell you right now. I don't do woodworking, right? But my understanding is that every piece of wood has a grain, right? And when you cut against the grain, it's not a good thing, as far as I know. I also like to grill. I like food. Therefore, I like to grill food, right? And so when you have a chicken breast and there's a certain kind of grain to the meat, and when you try and cut against that grain, it just clumps up and falls apart. See, when we go against the grain, life becomes hard. See, as Christians, we are against the grain of this world. It's struck me recently that many of us, uh, we we have no vision for what it is to be living in exile as Christians. We get along with our, uh, I'll say this, to some of us, this message of an alien life is just foreign. This message that we are elect exiles is just strange to us. We, We get along with our coworkers, our neighbors, every conversation we have with others is pleasant. Our view of Christianity is, is to raise good kids, to pray before our meals, to uh, be a good person that your neighbors like to talk to. It, it carries ramifications for maybe how you go into the voting booth or some other things, but we don't really don't have much of a vision for what it looks like for us to be alien in this world, to be foreign in this world. But the life submitted to Jesus... The life submitted to Jesus leads to friction with those who aren't. Yeah, we do our best. We do our best to do what Paul says, where he says, as much as is possible with you, live peacefully with all men. We, we do everything we can. We, we try to not give offense where there is no offense needed. But it's worth noting that even Jesus, who lived out the per- perfect Christian life, found himself gathering people around miracles and scattering people with his teaching. I was talking to a pastor friend this week. Excuse me, I touched the wrong part, apparently. I was talking with a pastor friend this week. And he was talking about just the, the constant relational difficulty that he's found himself in. And this is a friend of mine. He's very easy to talk to. He's very cordial, very nice, very kind And he said, I never had anyone avoid me at the supermarket before I became a pastor. I never had anyone pick up the phone just to yell at me for 10 minutes. I never had anyone just avoid me in public places. And it's not because he's a pastor. It's more likely because he's done Christian things. He's lived out the purpose of God, the kingdom purpose of God And at times that means that he's lived oppositely of others around him. I just want to caveat this because some of us, we love conflict, right? Some of us just, we we feed off of conflict. Like we're actually looking for conflict. You ever meet people like that? See, Christians don't need to create tension with the world. It already exists, right? There's enough offense in the gospel. We don't need to work hard to create any more. In fact, one of the most difficult things for Christians to do is to figure out how to make the gospel the offensive part of our conversations and not everything else that we hold fast to. Hear me say it again. Only a precious few things are really worth fighting for. And the Christian life is about picking and selecting those things that I think are worth fighting for. There are things in life that are worth dying for, aren't there? There's... uh, Issues like our, our freedom as a country—we we stand alongside those veterans who have given up their lives to protect our freedom. But can I just humbly suggest—and I hope I'm not offending anyone here—but can I just humbly suggest that the challenging thing to do is actually to figure out what's worth living for, and speaking up for? You say. Great, Jason, so we're elect by God, we're exiles, I get to go home as an elect exile, and what does it mean for me? What does it actually change about my life? I want to give us some direction here this morning, as it were, how do we live as elect exiles? And I think the book will spell this out with more completion, but I just want to preemptively speak about this. It's worth noting that when Peter writes this, he closes out his introduction with, may grace and peace be multiplied to you. God gives grace and peace to us to help us navigate this. See, the remedy to us being elect exiles is to grow in God's grace. Did you know that you can grow in grace? Second Peter 3 says this, but grow in the grace and knowledge of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. And not only this, it's Lamentations 3, right? Um, steadfast love of the Lord never ceases. His mercies never come to an end. They are new every morning. God exp- gives to us an increasing ever-present grace for each day. And living by faith in a hostile world requires us to always tap deeper and deeper into the well of God's goodness and grace. You might feel tired and weary this morning. You might feel exhausted and worn out. But what we need is fresh expressions of grace. This morning, I got a call this morning from my wife. And uh, she said, the shower won't turn off. Which is problematic, right? Because the shower won't turn off, that's just constant water flowing down your drain. So I come home and I look at it, and I promise you, I'm looking at this stream of water going. It starts to look like nickels eventually, right? Like they're just going down the drain. They tapped into your bank account somehow, and you're just flushing money down the drain, right? The frustration, is you knew, I try to work at it, and I don't know what I'm doing, but I'm angry. I'm increasingly angry, and I'm trying not to act angry. Like, Dad, do you ever do that with your kids? Like, they come around, hey, what's going on, Dad? Oh, nothing. I'm fine. I'm fine. Just leave me alone. Yeah. That's what I was doing. I was clenching my teeth trying to act happy when I was not happy. Put it down, you know, call somebody else, see if they can fix it. Come here. Things aren't working quite the way they should. Try to fix that. Go out to the computer. It's not working. I'm touching, everything I touch breaks today. I don't know what's going on. I I think I should just go home and take a nap. But I had such a bad attitude, I feel like I should go home and take a time out, which is actually a reward for adults, not a punishment, right? (laughs) But I get in my car after I've worked on that, and I throw a little hissy fit, slam my hand against the console of my car, something that I would discipline my own children for. And now I have the shame of my own acting out and a hurt hand. So that's fun. The recognition is we need grace, don't we? We need fresh mercy. And it might not be a shower that doesn't work or a sound system or computers or whatever else. It might be that neighbor that just is constantly at odds with you. You always feel that friction in talking to them, that, that coworker at the water cooler, that every time you try and speak to them, there's just that awkward thing because you tried to share the gospel with them. That neighbor who, who just has it out for you because they know you're a Christian, they know uh, that you hold to a different standard. How do we navigate those things? We look for grace. Each morning we wake up and we say, God, I need grace, I need peace. I need to be reminded of the work of Christ so that I'm prepared to take on the weight of today. I need to be recipient of, of your mercy and kindness in Christ, so that I can be a dispenser of mercy and kindness to others. I sense that we're just uh, weary. We've heard multiple people over the last few months just kind of constantly tell us they're, they're just tired. They're, they're tired at work. They're tired at home. There's lots going on. There's, there's issues arising in households. There's other things going on, not just in our church, but I hear it from other pastors. And uh, just recognizing that we're all feeling this kind of weight right now. Well, what do we do with all of that weight when well, we come to the God of grace? We do as Hebrews 4 tells us, we come that we might receive mercy and find grace to help. We come to our intercessor, Jesus Christ, and we say, God, I need grace. So this morning, I want to close out with that exact prayer. God, give us grace. Would you pray with me this morning? Lord, we ask now that as elect exiles, she would multiply grace and peace to us. Make us ever more aware of the provision you've given to us in Christ. Help us with the richness of the gospel to be able to work through the issues of our life, of our existence in this world. Not independent from you, but in deep reliance upon you. And when we fail, that we would find grace and mercy. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.